I imagine that all of us have seen at one time or another building projects that were left half finished. When Marianne and I lived in Arizona in 2007 and 2008 during the financial crisis, we saw literal neighborhoods half finished, McMansions halfway built. It was almost as if the cranes literally were just left where they were and they were abandoned like ghost towns. One of the members of the church that I served at in Tucson loved to play golf, and I would often go out with him and attempt to play golf while he actually played golf on a very, very beautiful country club in Tucson. And atop one of the hills on this golf course was an amazing half-built mansion. And during the six years that we lived in Arizona, I probably played golf 50 times with this man, and that house never changed one time in the six years we were there. I imagine that to this day, that house remains atop that hill halfway built because the builders building their dream retirement home didn't count the cost and ran out of money. This is a story in the Bible about an unfinished building project. It's about the city and the Tower of Babel. And uh, the pride that lay underneath the surface of what was going on there. And this is another story that demonstrates for us what we've seen repeatedly in these stories in Genesis 1 through 11. It demonstrates for us the advancement of human rebellion against God. The advancement of human rebellion against God. It demonstrates God's just and good judgment. And it also, thankfully, demonstrates for us God's intervening grace. And uh, it's another story that tells us about ourselves and tells us about the one true living God. And these are themes that we've studied repeatedly in these stories. Genesis 1 through 11 is full of stories, and the stories are intended to help us frame our own lives, to help us understand ourselves and understand God rightly. And so we find ourselves here in Genesis 11 after the story of the flood has concluded. And in chapter 10 of Genesis, we see a sampling of the generations of Noah, the children of Noah and descendants of Noah listed there in Genesis 10. It lays out for us what has been called the table of nations. What it's doing is chronicling in condensed form the origins of the great nations of the world after the flood. They dispersed over the earth and they created states and cultures and languages, etc., And then in Genesis 11, the story that Karen just read for us, we see the author microscoping in on one particular city in one particular time to show us that the truth is always the truth. The truth is that apart from God, humans, people like us, are desperately foolish and wicked. Sin advances still in Genesis 11. However, we also need to read this story in light of the larger story of the Bible and in light of the larger themes of the Bible. And when we do that, we know that God's judgment here against human pride is not the end of the story. One day, God is going to reverse the curse that we see here at Babel. And if we trust in Jesus Christ, we are a part of that great reversal ourselves. And so I want to study this story with you by breaking it into three parts. The sin of Babel, the judgment of Babel, and the reversal of Babel. Okay, the sin, the judgment, and the reversal of Babel. Let's look first at the sin of Babel. You see that in verses 1 through 4. We read there in verse 1 and verse 2 that the people of Shinar, who are descendants of Ham, 
who was one of Noah's three children. They want to settle down and leave their their nomadic existence behind. And so they begin to construct a city in verse 2. And uh, in the middle of that city, they begin to build this huge tower. Now, I love cities. I love living in San Antonio. I love the fact that cities offer diversity and complexity and all kinds of different opportunities and amenities. I love going to New York City. It's one of my favorite places to visit in the world. I don't know if I would want to live there, but I like visiting there. I love visiting new cities. Cities aren't inherently bad or evil. In fact, the Bible actually tells us that the heaven itself is going to be a city. The New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22, is a city. So cities aren't inherently bad or evil, but there's something beneath the surface here in this particular city and in this particular skyscraper or tower that was being built that was quite evil and quite destructive. The sin of Babel is multifaceted, really. And in a way, what it does is is it represents the culmination of all that we've seen since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And it's also in many ways a reoccurrence of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and of the sin of the people of Noah's age before the flood. Really, in the multifaceted nature of the sin of Babel, you can think about it in three big sections. First, you see that the people in Babel sin here in wanting to manipulate God. That's part of what's happening. They are wanting to manipulate God. And you can only really get that if you really understand what this tower is. The tower was what was known as a ziggurat. Some of you might remember that. Some of you might not remember that. It's unlikely that you remember that from your history class. A ziggurat, I think we've got a picture of it. There's a ziggurat right there. It was sort of like an Egyptian pyramid, except not smooth. It's like a staircase up into the heavens. And a ziggurat was something that was very common in the ancient Mesopotamian world. And really what ziggurats were, were temples. And we know this from some of the excavations that have been made of very, very old ruins of ziggurats. And we know from documents we've recovered some of their names. Just as a few examples, one ziggurat in Babylon was called the house of the link between heaven and earth. And another was named the temple to the stairway of heaven. Led Zeppelin stole it from them. The temple to the stairway of heaven. So a ziggurat was a huge temple that was designed by these ancient people for a god to come down and visit. And they would often put a bed and a table and a chair on top of the temple. So, you know, the god could come down and, and get a nap in. I'm sure he's tired after all his work in heaven and eat a nice lunch by himself and just get some solitude for a little while. And so that's what's happening here. In Babel, the people are constructing an ancient ziggurat, an ancient temple. So what's the problem with that? The problem with that is this. These temples were designed and constructed with one purpose. Their sole purpose was to control or manipulate the gods. In fact, that's really what all ancient religions are about in their essence. And I would actually argue that's what all modern religions, except for Christianity, are about in their essence. The whole idea of religion is basically this. I am going to appease this God. I'm going to make this God happy. I'm going to give this God what he or she wants. And then this God is going to protect me from enemies, going to protect me from my crops failing. He's going to keep my kids from getting sick. 
So the Tower of Babel was a massive attempt to manipulate God, to get him to do their bidding. Now, for modern, sophisticated people like us, that might seem really archaic and really foreign. But I want you to consider the idea that we actually treat God in the same way very regularly. I'm convinced that all religion is an effort in tower building. The commentator John Walton writes this, We want a manageable God light. We want to be able to harness his power for our own benefit, no strings attached. That is the default way that human beings operate with God. And one way we know that we are falling into the business of manipulating gods or God is this. If bad things happen to us and we get upset with God because we think we've done things the right way. When we see any suffering or setback in our lives as a betrayal on God's part, we are living a babble existence, a karmic existence and not a Christian existence. And that is, I'm convinced, as common in my life and in your life as the skyscrapers in Manhattan. So part of the sin of Babel is they're trying to manipulate God. A second part of the sin of Babel is seen in their pride. And this is probably the clearest sin in the story. Look in verse 4. We read that the builders of the city say, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower and let us make a name for ourselves. The builders of Babel are all about self-glorification. They want this tower to be a monument, a monument to their own greatness. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to be remembered. Uh, Achilles is one of the most famous figures in ancient stories. He's in the Iliad, Homer's very, very old odyssey. And uh, Achilles is famous for his pride and for caring deeply about how people remember his name. And in the movie Troy, uh, Brad Pitt played Achilles. I'm still not sure what I think about that, but he played Achilles. And uh, in one part in that movie, Brad Pitt as Achilles is going to fight this one-on-one battle against this big, huge sword-wielding guy. And as he's on the way to the fight, this little boy comes up to him and helps him get on his horse. And he says, He's the biggest man I've ever seen. I would never want to fight him. And Achilles just sort of looks down at the boy and says, that's why no one will ever remember your name. But it's interesting that the one thing we all know about Achilles is his great weakness, right? The Achilles heel. And that's getting towards the point of what's going on here in Babel. Their sin is seen in their pride. And really the essence of sin, the very heart of sin is pride. It's the great sin, as C.S. Lewis says. It's desiring self-glory more than God's glory. It's living life to make a monument to yourself. We've defined sin throughout this series as a transfer of allegiance from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of self. And the logical conclusion of that transfer is human pride. And so this story is asking you a question. The story's interacting and engaging with your life as the Holy Spirit moves, and it's asking you, are you living a life to make a name for yourself? That's one of the most common uh, mindsets in 
our world, and I think it's also one of the most common mindsets in religious communities, in churches. It's also, however, one of the areas in which we are most self-deluded. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes brilliantly about this. Listen to what he says. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure we are being acted upon not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Babel's sin is seen in their desire to manipulate and control God. It's seen in their pride. And then lastly, it's seen in their fear. Look with me again in verse 4. And this gets us to the sin beneath the sin, so to speak. They say, let's make a tower and its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves. And then we see why. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. In other words, these people want the security that a walled city would have provided them. And they don't want the insecurity that their wandering existence guarantees. The reason these people are so proud is because deep down, they are radically insecure and afraid. That's what the story's telling us. And isn't that the truth always in every case? That story's as old as Babel. In fact, older than Babel. The most proud are very often the most insecure. The most externally brash are the most internally frail. And these people use technological advancement to protect themselves so that they can feel secure and in control. And then they cover over it with this self-glorification. Again, the story is asking you a question. Really, the mega question is, where do you place your trust? Do you place it in the things that you think provide you security, your retirement account, your health, your family name, your reputation, your job? The story shows us that the greatest human achievements cannot solve the deepest human problems. The greatest human achievements cannot solve the deepest human problems. We see that and the multifaceted sin of Babel. The second half of the story is about God's response. And so we see the judgment of Babel, secondly. The way God responds is by coming in judgment. And his judgment takes a very interesting form, doesn't it, in this story. He scatters the people across the face of the earth, and he also, we read, confuses their language. Verse 7 so that they can't continue to pursue this tower-building project. And that's why the tower is called Babel. By the way, Babel is probably the ancient city of Babylon. That's almost certainly what's going on here. The word Babel means, as you might imagine, confusion. And so God comes and disperses the people across the face of the earth, and he confuses their languages. And the story really gives us two reasons just below the surface of why God is judging the world in exactly this way. Why God judges Babel in exactly the way he did. I want to just show you these two things quickly. First, God comes in judgment at Babel because God cares about the glory and honor of his name. That idea is woven throughout the story. 
Remember, the builders of the tower are trying to glorify and honor their own names, but God really is saying here, the only name worth honoring is mine. And the way that shows up in the story is through the narrative device of irony. Irony. We see it all the time in the Bible, and we see it here, especially in verse 5. Look in verse 5 with me. We read, the Lord came down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now remember, they want to build this tower up into the heavens. They want it to be so amazing and grandiose that God and everyone else is going to know that it's there. But we read very intentionally that the author says God couldn't see it because it was so minuscule. He has to come down to get a view at it. You know, my kids and I like to do Legos. And uh, despite the fact that I step on them almost every night, when I wake up, or every morning when I wake up, because there's some on the floor. We love to do Legos, and one of the coolest Lego inventions, I think, ever is the Death Star. Uh, The Death Star Lego thing is like 2,000 pieces. It looks amazing. We might even do it this Christmas at the Evans house. But we wouldn't imagine the Evans boys and I, and Ainsley and I, and Marianne and I, building the Death Star, and then inviting Darth Vader to come down from the real Death Star and say, aren't you impressed? With what we've built here, check out our mini Death Star. That would be laughable, right? And that's the whole point of the irony here. All human attempts to find security and glory and honor are really laughable. When we attempt to do that outside of God. And so God's judgment takes the form it does... He doesn't allow the tower to get finished because God wants us to know that only he is worthy of that kind of glory, that God alone is our strong tower. God is our rock, our fortress, and our refuge, as the Psalms tell us again and again. So God comes in judgment first because he cares about the glory of his own name. Secondly, God comes in judgment because he wants to preserve mankind and his world. He wants to protect us from ourselves. His judgment is actually a mercy. His judgment is a mercy. How so? Well, look in verse 6. We read that God says to himself, Behold, they're one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, what's going on there? It's not like God is afraid. It's not like God is afraid of the tower or afraid of the tower builders. It's not as if God has genuinely found a potential rival here in this very, very old city. What God is doing, rather, is saying as a loving father and as a loving creator that the sin and the habits that these people are going to reap on the world is going to be exponential unless I do something to restrain it. God's judgment here prevents the effects of human sin and foolishness being as bad as they could be. That's why he doesn't just, you know, knock over the tower. You ever thought about that? Why doesn't God just topple the tower? Why does he confuse their languages and spread them around the world? Well, he does it to prevent them from harming themselves and others in ways that are going to be so serious that we're going to have to have like another flood. Remember, this is right after the flood. God's judgment here is setting up guardrails. It's setting up guardrails in his world to prevent us from destroying ourselves 
and from destroying each other. And as I was thinking about this this week, for my own life, I'm persuaded that this is super relevant for the things that we face right now. Our pursuit of making names for ourselves, my pursuit of making a name for myself is actually going to result in my hurting myself and my hurting others. Your pursuit of making a name for yourself is going to leave wreckage everywhere. You know, we see this in all kinds of stories of, quote, great men. If you read biographies, for example, you'll probably know that the, quote, great men of the world are very rarely good men. You ever thought about that? I just recently read a biography of LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, by Robert Caro. He's written a four-part biography. It's insanely long. I've only read the first one. And uh, one of the things that you learn about LBJ is that from the time he was in high school in the hill country of Texas and in college at uh, Texas State in San Marcos, he was a master at playing his friends off of one another and politicizing everything that he was a part of. He was a master of getting exactly the results that he wanted through subterfuge and working in dark rooms, you know, that were smoke-filled. He was just a political superhero. But throughout that book and throughout his life, Carol makes it clear that Lyndon Johnson, despite his mastery of politics, found himself all alone. He was really a miserable and despised human being. And the reason is because seeking to build your own kingdom is only going to bring your ruin and the ruin of others. And it's the same in our lives. It's the same in our lives. When we do nothing but work to build up our companies or our practices or our churches and steamroll everyone else, we find ourselves at the end of the day alone with no one to enjoy the fruits of our labors with. You know, the Rolling Stones say, you can't always get what you want. Great theologians, the Rolling Stones. But sometimes, if you try, you find you might get what you need. You know, I'm convinced that sometimes God not giving us what we most want is one of his biggest mercies to us. Sometimes God not giving us what we most want is one of his biggest mercies to us because getting what we want would destroy us and destroy those closest to us. That's the point of Babel. It's the point of God's judgment. You see, the sin of Babel, the judgment of Babel, lastly, the reversal. So God is uh, acting in judgment against the pride of these men and women attempting to build this tower into the heavens. However, um, as we've seen in every story in this series, Genesis 1 through 11 is all about pointing us, it's all about directing us to the greater narrative of God acting to save. It's all about showing us that God never gives up on his world that he loves. God never gives up on you right here, right now, no matter what you're facing. God never gives up on you. We see sin advance in significant ways in this story. And you know what? You might see sin advancing in significant ways in your life and in the lives of those close to you right now. But God, the Bible tells us, is the pursuing God of grace and mercy. God is about the business of taking sin away through his own work. And we see that hinted at even here in the story of Babel and fulfilled in the larger story of the Bible. 
Notice that right after the Babel episode, we read in chapter 11, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Shem. Now, who is Shem? Shem is another one of Noah's children. The Semitic people come from Shem, Semitic, Shem. He's the father of Terah, who is the father of Abraham, who's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12, and about whom the rest of the story of Genesis involves. And the reason that we read right after the Tower of Babel, the introduction of Shem and his family leading to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel is to hint for us that God is not giving up on his broken and tarnished world. It's to hint for us that Shem's story and family show us that God is gathering a people for himself in the middle of all the wreckage of the world. That's what the rest of Genesis is about. God plucks his chosen people. He plucks his elect people out of the disarray of sin and he makes promises to them and he rescues them. And we know that God does that because Jesus himself is a Shemite, a Jew. Jesus himself is the final answer to the promise that God makes to his people to save even in the middle of the brokenness and horrors of the world. Jesus is the one who eventually comes and reverses the curse in our lives, demonstrated here at Babel, by taking the curse upon himself. By taking the curse that we deserve at the cross, Jesus reverses Babel. You need to see yourself in the light of that story. God has chosen to pluck you out of the disarray and wreckage of the world as well. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the only reason that that is true, the only reason you're a Christian is because God has sovereignly and graciously acted and intervened in your story, dispensing into your life tremendous and abundant grace, which you don't deserve and could never earn. He has lavished his great love upon you in his sovereign mercy. We see that hinted at even in Genesis 11. In the greater story of the Bible, though, last thing, we see Babel reversed in even a more profound way, I think. Uh, On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we read that after Jesus has ascended into heaven, after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus has promised to give to his church, is poured out. Until Jesus returns, the Spirit is with us. And I just want to read for you a couple of verses from Acts chapter 2, and I want you to think in your minds about how this might be connected to Babel. Listen, Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what 
could this mean? I'll tell you what it means. What it means is that Babel, in the coming of the Spirit, is set in reverse. At Pentecost, we see no longer the people of the world being dispersed, but the people of the world through the church being united. At Pentecost, we no longer see the confusion of language, but the clarity of language through the supernatural intervening work of God, the Holy Spirit. And through these people that the Spirit gathers, that we call the church, we honor God and we experience change in our own lives and we tell the good news of Jesus to the world so that rather than people being confused, people now in Christ are united. You see, the Spirit brings clarity. The Spirit brings clarity where Babel brought disorder. And so we see here again, as we wrap up this series, that the two main threads of the entire Bible are evident throughout Genesis 1 through 11. They're evident throughout the Tower of Babel. The first thread is that we are desperately broken beyond saving on our own. Remember, we said again and again that the Bible is an unrivaled resource for helping us to understand ourselves. And the Bible says about us that we are just like those tower builders at Babel. We are by nature full of pride and full of attempts to manipulate God and full of fear and a desire to control. We naturally pursue self-glory and reject God. And so what the Bible asks of us, what Jesus asks of us, is to admit that that is true of ourselves. The second thread that we see again and again is that God comes with power and mercy to forgive us in the person of Jesus Christ and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to bring sinful rebels like you and like me from all across the world together into the body of Jesus Christ where there is, again, unity, and to wait until Christ returns to make all things new. That's the story of the Bible, and really it's also the story of your life. The question is, will you accept it? Let's pray.